Welcome back to Read Me a Story. As we continue the book Precious Time by Erica James, Clara has come across Val's diaries, which had been pushed into a cupboard in Winnie and forgotten. After reading the last entry, she knows she must go back to Deaconsbridge and give the diaries to Gabriel. But how will he react? Meanwhile, Casper's money worries are coming to a head and both Gabriel and Jonah are missing Clara and Ned's presence at Mermaid House. Jonah is worried that Gabriel is showing signs of depression and is fearful of what he will do. Let's read on. Chapter 42 It was just as Casper feared. The bank had pulled the rug out from beneath him. They turned down his request for another 30 days grace, and with no one else to turn to, it was financial meltdown time. He threw the letter onto the pile of bills on his desk with contempt and directed his anger at those who could have helped. His accountant for not moving fast enough to save him from bankruptcy. His vindictive father for being such a tight old buzzard and too stubborn to sell Mermaid House. The blood-sucking man at the Inland Revenue for hounding him so relentlessly. The European Commission for insisting that the special relationship between car manufacturers and dealers had to be shaken up and that forecourt prices had to be cut. He also blamed the hordes of cheapskate cowboys who were ruining decent businesses like his by bringing luxury cars into the country by the back door. He supposed it said a lot about the calibre of his customers who were now taking their money to these fly-by-night johnnies with their low overheads, fast turnaround, cheaper imports and undercut prices. Never mind the after-sales problems they experienced. Never mind the fake documents with which these cars often came. Never mind that men like Casper Liberty were forced to rob Paul to pay Peter and go to the wall in the process. Through the glass panel of his office, which looked out onto the showroom, he watched a young man of no more than 25 approach a Jaguar XKR. It was late afternoon and the sunlight was shining in through the plate glass window, showing off to perfection the car's smooth, sleek lines and glossy red finish. The man slipped into the driver's seat, one hand cupping the head of the gear lever, the other stroking the steering wheel. With his well-cut suit, open neck shirt, gold watch, ostentatious bracelet, deep tan and collar-length hair, he bore all the hallmarks of a vulgar young blood. In other words, a genuine punter. He was probably a professional footballer, or big in the world of popular music. God knows there are enough of them in Manchester. What he couldn't be mistaken for was a member of the Anorak crowd, pathetic time-wasters who came in to drool over something they could never afford. Casper waited for one of his salesmen to materialise. Minutes passed and no one appeared. He was about to go and deal with the man himself when the telephone on his desk rang. He hesitated, caught between the two. Then he thought, what the hell, the business was sunk. He sat at his desk with his head lowered and let the phone ring until the caller gave up. In the staff room at Dick High, Jonah put down the phone. He'd never rung his brother at work before, but then he'd never been so worried about their father. It was four days now since he had witnessed the unimaginable, Gabriel Liberty crying. Since then, he had called at Mermaid House every day, intending to carry on where Miss Costello had left off. But his father had had other ideas. I'd rather you didn't meddle with my things, he had said, taking from Jonah the roll of plastic sacks for the bin he had just emptied. And what, I'd like to know, has got into you all of a sudden? 
Why have you taken it upon yourself to keep pestering me? He had wanted to say, because I'm worried about you, but his courage had failed him. Showing concern was tantamount to showing weakness, and that was something no liberty was ever allowed to do. His father's stolid manner and desire to pretend that there had been no breakdown at the kitchen table proved that he was determined the matter should never be referred to again. But Jonah knew he would never forget that night when he had helped his father upstairs and put him to bed. Gabriel had fallen asleep almost immediately, his head had touched the pillow, and not wanting to leave him alone, Jonah had found himself a blanket and passed an uncomfortable night in an armchair beside the bed, imagining that the morning would bring a degree of openness between the two of them. His hope had been misplaced. The next day his father had indicated that once more the shutters were down, but his words had been at odds with his actions, for seconds later he had fled the room, locked himself in the bathroom and stayed there for nearly an hour. Jonah was convinced that his father was depressed, that in his current state he would isolate himself further and his health would suffer. On more than one occasion he had found him standing in the library, staring blankly at Anastasia's portrait. He had tried several times to get him out of the house, suggesting to go for a walk while the weather was warm and dry, but anything he put forward was thrown back at him with the same taciturn reply. Why can't you just leave me alone? Jonah had to face facts. As ever, his presence was adding to his father's discomfort, or, more accurately, his presence was the cause of his pain. He had considered getting in touch with Dr Singh, but again his courage had failed him. Yet the concern that was uppermost in Jonah's mind, and the reason why he had taken the unprecedented step of phoning Casper at work, was that he felt their father's mental state might deteriorate to the extent that one day he would go out for a walk with one of his guns and never come back. Though why he thought Casper would be of any use, Jonah didn't know. He would probably offer to load the gun. But perhaps turning to his brother reflected the depth of his concern. In desperation, he even wondered if it would be worth his while to get in touch with Damson. He sighed deeply. Why was it always he who had to sort things out? It had been the same when Val had died. Everyone had expected him to deal with the funeral arrangements. But you're so good at these humdrum things, Damson had said airily, when he'd hinted that maybe she and Casper might like to give him a hand. And anyway, she added, you wouldn't want me organising a funeral. I'd feel duty-bound to turn it into a theatrical event. Jonah hadn't doubted it. His sister's idea of a funeral would probably include a pair of black horses pulling a Victorian glass hearse with a court edge of professional keeners trailing behind. In the staff room, standing at the window, looking down on the playground, he saw a familiar figure striding across the tarmac. A lad wearing a Marilyn Manson t-shirt and hugely baggy jeans hanging off his hips. Talking into a mobile phone, Jaso Dowd was pushing against the tide of shambolic gangs of jostling home leavers, one of whom was Sharna Powell. It was early days yet, but since Jonah's visit to 23 Capstone Close, Sharna's attendance at school had been 100%. Checking his watch, Jonah saw that it was four o'clock and time for his 11th hour revision lesson for his GCSE history set. Gathering up his briefcase, pleased that Jace had shown up, he set off for his classroom, thinking how easy it was to motivate his pupils, but how impossible it was to do the same with his family. That evening, to the sound of church bells, it was bell-ringing practice night, 
Jonah cooked himself supper. After he had eaten, and while it was still light, he went outside to work in the garden. He was just in the right frame of mind to deal with the ancient honeysuckle. He hacked away at the woody growth, thinking how sad it was that the only person who could lift their father's spirits was not a member of the family, but the redoubtable Miss Costello. He stood back from what was left of the mutilated bush and decided to have a bonfire. It was almost dark now, very quiet, the bell ringers had gone home, and there was little wind. So he bundled up the honeysuckle, took it down to the bottom of the garden and dropped it on the blackened remains of a previous fire. He fetched some sheets of newspaper and a box of matches from the shed. Twigs were soon snapping and crackling and tiny flames flickering, and before long small billowing clouds puffed into the still night air. As Jonas stared into the darkness at the outlines of the distant hills, spotted here and there with glowing lights, he found himself wishing he could track down his father's fairy godmother. He would drag her back to Deaconsbridge and make her wave her magic wand over Mermaid House once more. As he absorbed himself in this scenario, he was forced to admit that his altruism was transparently thin. He didn't want Miss Costello back just for his father's benefit. Since her departure from Mermaid House, he had thought of her frequently. He wanted to figure out what had attracted him to her. Had it been her challenging manner, or the sharpness of her mind, and the way she always seemed to be one step ahead of him? He smiled wryly. Or perhaps it had been nothing more than the pose she had struck that day in the courtyard. Was he merely the same as the next man, aroused simply by the thought of a woman's body and the potential pleasure and gratification held within? Disconsolately, he poked the charred ends of a long stick into the glowing embers of the fire. What did it matter anyway? She was never coming back. Chapter 43 Yorkshire was behind them now. They had left Haworth early that morning in a blaze of sunshine, taking the A629 to Halifax, then on to Huddersfield and Holmfirth, last of the summer wine country, before crossing the boundary into Derbyshire. If they kept up their current speed, Clara reckoned they were less than an hour from Deaconsbridge. She had thought of ringing Mermaid House to announce their arrival, but Ned had begged her not to. He was desperate to surprise Mr Liberty. Just as she had anticipated, Ned had been overjoyed when she had told them that they would be making a return trip to Mermaid House, though, of course, she hadn't told him the reason behind their visit. His eyes wide with excitement, he had burst out that this was what he had wished for when he tossed his coin into the mermaid's pool in the cavern. "'You see, Mummy,' he said, hopping from one small foot to the other, "'wishes do come true.' He'd wanted to pack up there and then, but she'd insisted that they finish visiting what they'd come to see in Haworth and the surrounding area. But now, and much to Ned's delight, they would shortly be seeing Gabriel Liberty. His excitement gave him an extra bounce, and she wished she had half his vitality. As she concentrated on the winding road, she was aware that a nagging headache was developing and that she felt drained. The cause was anxiety and guilt. She was nervous about coming clean with Gabriel over Val's diaries. She just hoped he could forgive her for what she had done. She didn't know why, but his forgiveness was important to her. Gabriel pushed his stockinged feet into his walking boots, and after a brief stab at tying the laces with his useless fingers, they were particularly painful that day, he slipped a shotgun over the crook of his arm and shut the door after him. 
crossed the courtyard and skirted round the front of the house, across the sloping lawn, where the daffodils had long since gone over, and carried on towards the copse. The rhododendrons were in full flower, splashes of vermilion brilliant against the dark green of glossy leaves. He trudged on, his boots sinking into the soft grass. Sheep scattered at his approach, bleating mournfully, and above him the sun shone on the back of his neck, making him regret putting on the wax jacket. His thoughts, never far from his younger son these days, turned to Jonah and how badly he had treated him, and was continuing to treat him. But it was too late to make amends for the damage he had wreaked. What good would it do to tell Jonah that he was sorry? It wouldn't change anything, not the words, the gestures, the neglect, or the downright cruel way he had excluded and blamed the boy. If only he had been a better man, a better father, he would have realised that his younger son had never deserved such rough punishment. It hadn't been Jonah who had killed Anastasia. Fate had done that. But for all these years, ever since Gabriel had come home in the middle of the night and had been told that his wife was dead, he had needed to lay the blame on someone. And he had done it that night when the young nurse had handed Jonah to him. He had turned his back on her and his baby son and walked out of the room, out of the house. In the darkness, he had stumbled down to the copse and stayed there until dawn had bruised the sky, tearing it apart with harsh streaks of sunlight. Eventually he went back to the house, but didn't look at the newborn baby, not until after the funeral, and only then for a few seconds. How could he, when he saw him as the cause of his beloved wife's death? It was years before he was able to lay eyes on the child, without wishing he had died instead of Anastasia. For years, tolerance was the best he could manage, a thin veneer of tolerance that was often stripped back to reveal his bitterness and to let his child know what it was to suffer. Oh, how callous he had been. And what had woken him to the truth? It was the shock of recognising Anastasia's face so clearly in Jonah's. Seeing the two of them so inextricably bound together had brought him up short, had made him, for the first time ever, see Jonah for what he really was, his mother's son. He was not, as Gabriel had made him out to be, a malevolent stranger who had walked into his life and wrecked it. He was the son of the woman Gabriel had never stopped loving. Now, whenever he looked at his son, he saw Anastasia staring back at him. She was in Jonah's eyes, the turn of his head, the shape of his mouth. The pain of his guilt went so deep inside him that sometimes Gabriel had to sit down and wait for it to pass. But the one thing he couldn't do was face Jonah and confide in him. He was too ashamed. Ashamed to admit that for all this time he had harboured such a monumental and misplaced grudge. That was why he continued to rebuff Jonah. Having him around only added to his grief, because that was what it felt like. Since that appalling night when he had broken down, it was as if he was being forced to grieve for his darling Anastasia all over again. Plunged further into misery, he pressed on down to the copse where, in the dense shade of the trees that were in full leaf now, a blanket of bluebells shimmered, their colour brightening the darkness. Though not the darkness by which he felt so consumed, that would never lift. That was his punishment. It was no more than he deserved. But he'd had enough of the burden, the strain of knowing that in this life he would never be released from the shame and the guilt. It was too much for him. He wanted to be with Anastasia. He needed her forgiveness for what he had done. 
the weight of the gun pressed heavily on his arm. He shifted it to a more comfortable position and entered the wood, feeling at once the welcome cool shade offered by the trees. He paused, making up his mind where he wanted to be. As to the rest, he had thought it all out, had prepared himself so that he could at least get this right. The triumphant entrance Ned had hoped to make was spoiled by Gabriel not answering the door. Shall we go inside and find him? Ned asked, assuming that the door would be unlocked. He pressed his forehead to the door, peered in through the letterbox. Clara tried the handle and stepped inside, Ned at her heels. But we'll only go as far as the kitchen, she said. We ought not intrude any further. She was surprised to see that her hard work had not been in vain. While the kitchen had gathered a few extraneous piles of paperwork, mostly bills and bank statements, the place was still reasonably clean and orderly. She wondered if Gabriel had found himself a cleaner. Leaving Ned to call him, she noticed the postcards lined up along the windowsill. Touched that he had kept them, she went over to look at them, recalling exactly when and where each had been written. Still not getting any response to his eager cries, Ned joined her at the sink. Do you think he's gone for a walk, he asked, his elation fizzling into disappointment. I think that's precisely what he's done. Shall we see if we can find him? She had seen the battered old Land Rover in the courtyard, so it was a safe bet that he hadn't gone far, unless, of course, Jonah had given him a lift somewhere. They shut the back door and set off toward the copse, which, according to Ned, was where Gabriel liked to go. He makes sure the badgers are all right, he informed Clara. It was a truly glorious day. The sun shone brightly in a perfect canopy of blue, and the air smelt sweet from the grass beneath their feet. In the distance, the hills were golden with flowering gorse bushes. Nearing the copse, Clara was overcome by the most beautiful sight. Bluebells, hundreds of them. She had never seen so many in one spot before. It was breathtaking, a magical infusion of colour. She stood for a moment to take it in. It was so tranquil here, so perfect. High up in one of the trees, a wood pigeon broke the calm clattering its wings as it flew out of the copse. It came towards them, and ahead of her, Ned came to a stop. He tilted his head so far back to watch the bird, she thought he might fall over. She caught up with him, and together they passed from the sunny brightness into the dappled, shadowy gloom. The fresh, meadow-sweet fragrance of crushed grass was replaced by the earthy smell of moss, rotting bark, and mouldy, damp leaves. He usually goes this way, Ned said, knowledgeably pointing towards a leafy path that twisted through the thicket of trees. They'd only taken a few steps into the cool woodland when Clara stood still. She craned her neck. Ned looked up at her. What? I thought I heard something, she smiled. It was probably one of Mr Liberty's badgers. But within seconds they had stopped again, and this time she knew she wasn't imagining it. Someone else was in the copse. Remembering that day down by the river, when they had first arrived in Deaconsbridge, she held Ned's hand firmly. The sound grew louder, and she wasn't sure what it was she could hear. It was a groaning of such guttural rawness, it was animal-like. Bravely, she carried on, until at last they came to a small clearing, and she saw the source of the noise. It was Gabriel Liberty. He was on his knees, crumpled over the trunk of a fallen beech tree, and beneath his wax jacket he was shaking violently. Stay here, Ned, she commanded, confusion written all over his anxious face. 
He did as she said and she moved in closer to Gabriel, who seemed to have no idea that they were there. She reached down to him, placed her hand lightly on his shoulder. He didn't react and the racking groans and rasping breath continued. Mr Liberty, she said, it's me, Clara, Miss Costello. Are you hurt? He stiffened and turned towards her, his face contorted with abject misery. Disbelieving eyes, brimming with tears, focused on her. It was then that she saw the shotgun cradled in his arms. Her instinct was to step back, to get as much distance as possible between herself and the gun. But instead she prized it out of his shaking hands and placed it on the other side of the tree trunk. Then she got down on her knees on the soft cushion of leaves and took him in her arms. She held him tightly, hushed him with soothing words as if he were Ned, until finally he gave one last shuddering sob, slumped against her and gradually became still. It took all of her strength to pull him up onto his feet and sit him on the damp, moss-covered tree trunk. When she had settled him and found a grubby old handkerchief in one of his jacket pockets, she beckoned Ned over. Mr Liberty isn't very well, Ned, she said matter-of-factly. Come and sit down and help me make him feel better. With one of them sitting on either side of him, the poor man's first coherent words were, I, I can't bear you to see me like this. She took the handkerchief from him and dabbed at his eyes. And I can't bear to think of you suffering like this all alone. What's been going on? He dropped his chin to his chest. It's, it's Jonah. Jonah? What's happened to him? Alarmed, Clara thought of the last time she'd seen Jonah, how his expression had transformed when he had dropped his guard. She thought too of all she now knew about him from reading Val's diaries. Has, has there been an accident? Gabriel looked at her, confused. No, he's murmured. It's me. It's what I've done to him. Terrible things. I'm, I'm so dreadfully ashamed. And there's no going back, I know that. His voice cracked and she felt a tremor run through him. She took his hands in hers and squeezed them firmly. There might not be a pedal for going backwards, she said, but there's always one for going forwards. Do you think with my help you could make it up to the house? He raised his red-rimmed eyes to hers. Miss Costello, I honestly believe that with your help I could do almost anything. She kissed his stubbly cheek, then helped him to his feet. Well, before we take on the world... Let's start with a short walk home, shall we? Chapter 44 In Clara's opinion, the best place for Gabriel was bed, but he refused point-blank to do as she said, just as he had vehemently rejected her suggestion that she ought to ring Jonah or Dr Singh. So she removed his cumbersome jacket, sat him in the chair next to the arga, and sent Ned upstairs to fetch a blanket. The poor man was in shock and shivering despite the warmth of the day. While Ned was out of the room, Clara knelt in front of him. She rubbed his hands. We can't talk now, she said. Not really talk. But later tonight, when Ned's asleep, I want you to tell me what's been going on here. But for now, all I can do is dose you with hot sweet tea and some chocolate cake we bought for you. From Howarth. He turned his bloodshot eyes on her. Dear girl, why are you so good to me? I don't deserve such kindness. Ulterior motive. I'm still hoping to seduce you and get that ring on my finger. He laid a hand over hers. 
What made you come back so soon? Did you forget something? In a matter of speaking, she hedged, but we'll talk about that later too. Puffing from his exertion, Ned burst into the kitchen. Will this do? Clara took the heavy, feather-leaking eiderdown from him with a smile. Perfect, Ned. Here, help me to wrap up Mr Liberty. We want him as snug as a bug in a rug. They sat with their mugs of tea and plates of cake. Clara let Ned do all the talking, sitting on Gabriel's lap with cake crumbs falling from his fingers as he waved his arms in the air. He told him all about their travels, of the castles they'd seen, the mountains, the lakes and the people they'd met. We even stayed on a farm, he said proudly, where I learned to milk a goat and I fed the chickens and I rode a pony too. I had to wear a hat that kept slipping over my eyes. Drawing breath, he paused before saying, but nowhere was as nice as this. We didn't meet anyone as nice as you, Mr Liberty. I'm glad to hear it. Clara topped up Gabriel's mug with more tea, relieved to hear a glimmer of his old spirit returning. When the time came for Ned to go to bed, Gabriel said he wanted them to be proper guests and stay the night inside Mermaid House. Apart from his bedroom, Val's old room was the only one Clara had cleaned and sorted, and though she had irrational reservations about using it, she made up the double bed to share with Ned. When she bent to kiss Ned goodnight, he hooked his hands round her neck and pulled her closer. I'm glad we came back, he said. I'm glad too. Then more seriously, he said, is Mr Liberty better now? She kissed him and unhooked his hands. He'll be fine. He just needs a little tender loving care. He's like a flower that someone has forgotten to water. We need to water him and make him nice and strong again. He considered this. How long will that take? I don't know. We'll have to see. Two days? Three days? She kissed him again, amused that he was subtly negotiating with her. Like I say, we'll have to wait and see. He seemed happy enough with her reply and didn't push any further. Instead, he yawned. He suddenly looked sleepy. Come on, she said. It's late and you need to get some rest or you'll be the one in need of watering. Enjoy your night's sleep in a proper bed and no kicking me when I join you later. He yawned again, turned on his side and reached under the pillow for Mermy. I promise, he said drowsily. Turning out the light, Clara felt the day catching up with her. More tired than she had felt in a long while, she took the stairs slowly, knowing it would be several hours before she would lay her aching head on a pillow. It was now time to get to the bottom of Gabriel's problems. Having read Val's diaries, she had a fair idea that raging guilt would be mostly to blame. Chances were it had finally caught up with him. The question was, why? She thought of that moment when just before entering the copse she had paused to admire the bluebells. She remembered thinking then that she was in the right place at the right time. She wasn't one of those cranky types who believed in synchronistic events shaping collective destinies. Making sense of coincidence with the benefit of hindsight was child's play, but there was no avoiding the extraordinary timing of her arrival here today. Call it luck, call it predetermination, call it what you will, but it was a good thing that someone had been there for Gabriel when he most needed a friend. Thank goodness for Val's diaries. Thinking of the diaries, Clara decided that it would be better to hang on to them until Gabriel was feeling a lot stronger. In his present state, they might upset him too much. He was waiting for her in the kitchen. He had moved from his chair by the arger and was clumsily stacking their supper things in the dishwasher. Despite his protests, she shooed him back to the chair. Leave that to me. 
I'm not an invalid, he argued, a little more of his old spirit shining through the clouds of his melancholy. But he relented anyway. She tied it up, then poured two glasses of whiskey, wondering who needed it more. She felt unaccountably lethargic and headachy, and wondered if she had a cold coming. When they were settled to either side of the arger, she said, So, what drove you to thinking about killing yourself? Gabriel flinched. He had known that this straight-talking woman would not couch her questions in polite euphemisms. Had known, too, that her candid approach was what he needed, and that it would bring him equal measure of pain and relief. But even so, hearing her put into such plain words what he had tried to do filled him with self-loathing. How desperate he had been! and how typically self-centred. Once again, he had put himself first, prepared to leave his family to clear up the mess he had made of his life and his death. He was nothing but a coward. He took a gulp of his drink. Failure, he said at last. I've been a lousy father, and it's only just dawned on me the harm I've done. She looked at him over the rim of her glass. Who do you think you failed the most? The lot of them. But especially Jonah. I've I've also failed Anastasia. Not Val. He kept his eyes lowered. Her too. I never gave her the credit she deserved. She was a good wife and, against all the odds, a good mother. A silence settled on the room. Not rushing to fill the pause, Gabriel took a long sip of his drink. Tell me about Anastasia, Clara said softly. She was the true love of your life, wasn't she? He took another swig of his whisky. That phrase doesn't even come close. How did you meet? At a wedding. And let me tell you, she outshone the bride by a long stretch. She was the most beautiful girl present, the most beautiful I'd ever seen. He cleared his throat, shifted in his seat. I was no spring chicken, no innocent, but she dazzled me from the moment she spoke. She was so compassionate so generally warm-hearted, so full of joy. She had this wonderful ability to make me feel special. Corny, I know, but the truth. She had that same effect on me, even when we were married. We could be at a party, separated by a room full of tedious people whom I had no desire to talk to, and our eyes would meet, and it would be as if we were alone. You're lucky to have experienced that depth of love. Few people do. It didn't feel lucky to have so much one minute, then have it snatched away the next. His tone was bitter. Sorry, back to wallowing in self-pity again. She waved aside his apology. Did you ever allow yourself to grieve for Anastasia when she died? And I don't just mean going through the motions of accepting well-meaning platitudes and attending a funeral. I mean, did you let yourself howl? Did you give in to the pain and let it render you helpless? Did you put yourself beyond caring what anyone thought of you? Fiddling with his glass, he said, you know the answer to that or you wouldn't be asking. But today you did put yourself beyond caring, didn't you? Today you did openly grieve for her and for everything that has happened since. He nodded. And I know what you're going to ask me next. You want to know what precipitated all this ghastly bearing of the soul and the realisation that I've let Anastasia down, quite apart from what I've done to Jonah. She raised her hand to interrupt him. Forgive me for splitting hairs, but you've known that all along. It's why you've suddenly acknowledged it that needs explaining. Swelling the last of his drink round, then drowning it in one, he said, I see, as ever, that you have your gloves off and are sparing me nothing. 
business as usual. So, what was the catalyst? You, my dear. Me? But how? Why? Until that moment, Gabriel hadn't known the answer to that question, which he'd asked himself earlier that day. But now he knew, with certainty, just how important a role this young woman and her son had played in opening his eyes. You and Ned made me feel better about life, he said simply. You made me realise what I'd been... what I'd been missing out on. He swallowed, suddenly frightened that his emotions were in danger of sliding out of control again. He was being so honest it hurt. As if understanding, she reached for the bottle of Glenmorangi on the table and refilled his glass. When she had sat down again, he said, In a nutshell, you cared. Oh, there was so much more he could say, so many truths he now understood. How she'd never judged him, never looked at him with eyes that feared or despised him. How she'd never hated him because he had neglected his family. How she'd amused him with her spirited put-downs. How she'd charmed him by not treating him as a decrepit old man. He could have said all this, if only he trusted himself to get the words out, without looking and sounding foolishly sentimental. As ever, she said just the right thing. I might have known you'd try and lay the blame on me. He managed a small smile. How do you think it makes me feel, knowing that in our politically correct society, which as you know I abhor, our roles have been reversed and I have been cast as sleeping beauty, while you've taken on the role as the prince who's awakened me with a kiss? She laughed. Perhaps Beauty and the Beast would be a more comfortable analogy for you. And, in case you're wondering, you're the beast. So how did you get from seeing life as a more worthwhile proposition to viewing Jonah differently? After you and Ned had left, I realised how lonely I was. And you shared this with Jonah? No. Oh, I wanted to. But have you an idea how hard it is to admit that you're lonely? You've just done it with me. That's because you're... you're different. You're a girl of unique charm and sensibility. She raised her glass to him. Still up to the speed with the schmaltz, I see. But back to Jonah. What changed between the two of you? I... I stopped blaming him for his mother's death. Keeping his voice as steady as he could, he explained about the night he had broken down in front of Jonah, how a connection had been made between them, but which he had found impossible to acknowledge or discuss. And it was all because I suddenly saw the likeness between Jonah and his mother. And you'd never seen it before? It sounds absurd, doesn't it? But no, not consciously. What the hell's been going on inside my brain all these years is anybody's guess. With a deep sigh of regret, he added, What does it matter? Jonah will never forgive me for what I've done. He stared at her miserably. She met his gaze with a shake of her head. Be warned, I'm about to split hairs again. You know jolly well, just as I do, that Jonah is one of the most compassionate people alive and that he'll forgive you at the drop of a hat. What you're scared of is how that will make you feel, that all this time his love and forgiveness were there for the asking, but you were such a heel you chose to ignore it. You don't think it's too late for reparation, then? She looked at him sternly. No, I don't. And, what's more, the sooner you do it, the better. Because then you'll realise that Jonah was one of the many gifts Anastasia left you. Perhaps the best gift of all. But how will he react when I tell him that all these years I blamed him for her death? You don't think he's always known that? Come on, it's time to be brave. Jonah's a big boy. He can take whatever revelations you throw at him.
He took a moment to absorb this idea, to let faint hope take root. Finally, he said, And what about Damson and Casper? What do I say to them? She rubbed her eyes and yawned. If you don't mind, I'd rather leave those two until tomorrow. For now, I need to go to bed. I'm shattered. Yes, of course, you must be tired after your long drive. They both rose to their feet. After they'd locked up and turned out the lights, Clara slipped her arm through his. They climbed the stairs together. She said, Would you ever consider seeking professional help? I mean, someone qualified to discuss what you've... Well, it was a close call today, and if I hadn't... He squeezed her arm. You're professional enough for me, my dear, and don't worry, I've learned my lesson. Which is? That while one is caught in the throes of a low and unhappy mood, it's not the ideal time to distinguish a right course of action. When they reached the top of the stairs, Clara said, I might not be as old as you, or have gone through as much, but my guess is there's no magic cure or easy way to cope with grief or guilt. You have to plough headlong through it, take whatever it chucks at you, good or bad. You sound as if you're talking from experience. This might come as a shock to you, but you don't have a monopoly on self-reproach. Most of us scourge ourselves from time to time with a little bit of soul-searching. Even you? Oh yes, even me. He walked her to Val's old room, and as she pushed open the door, causing a shaft of soft light to spill from the landing across the carpet to the bed, where the cause of her own soul-searching slept, she suddenly felt emotional and overwrought. She was tired, she told herself firmly. Nothing that a good night's sleep wouldn't cure. But she slept fitfully, tossing and turning in the large creaking bed, one minute hot, the next freezing cold, all the while crashing from one bizarre dream sequence to another. Next to her, Ned slept on, blissfully unaware of her discomfort. By the time daylight filtered through the gap in the curtains, she had managed to chase away the nightmares and fall into a deep, more restful sleep. She woke to find the other side of the bed empty and her head thumping. She was drenched in sweat but icy cold. Her eyes were sore, her throat felt dry, raw and lumpy, and her chest was as tight as a drum. She had only experienced full-blown flu once, but she suspected she was in for a second taste of it. Determined to prove herself wrong, that it was only a cold, she launched herself out of bed. A hot shower was all she needed, that, a cup of tea and a couple of paracetamol. She was halfway across the room when the door opened and Ned came in. He was dressed in the clothes he had worn yesterday, and a few paces behind him was Gabriel with a breakfast tray. He took one look at her and said, Good Lord, what have you been up to? You look dreadful. I feel dreadful, she croaked. She was immediately chivered back into bed. Pillows were shaken and plumped and the duvet straightened while Ned opened the curtains to brighten the room. Gabriel fetched some paracetamol from the bathroom and she washed them down with a mug of hot strong tea. She couldn't face the toast and marmalade he had so kindly made for her and within minutes her head and eyelids were drooping and she was faintly aware of a door shutting quietly. Sleep sucked her into a nightmarish maze of hunting for Ned but never finding him of driving Winnie up and down a network of narrow lanes and hills that always brought her to where she had started. She dreamed she was back at work, that she and the boys were conversing in German, even though they were working for French-speaking gnomes who sat cross-legged on their desks with little fishing rods 
and on the stroke of each hour burst into Rod Stewart's old song, Do You Think I'm Sexy? When she surfaced again, she needed to go to the loo. Shivering and squinting against the brightness, she focused on her watch. Heavens, it was four o'clock. Rallying her aching body, she made her way to the bathroom. When she traversed the landing, which felt as unsteady as the deck of a ship on the high seas, and had locked the door after her, she had the second shock of the day. Damn, her period had started. She groaned, recalling that she didn't have any of those wonder items tucked away in Winnie that would have enabled her to swim, roller skate and skydive to her heart's desire. She had used them all up during last month's extravaganza of sporting events. She groaned again. There was nothing for it. She would have to rouse herself and drive into Deaconsbridge. She would need to buy super-strength painkillers too, something lethal enough to stun a charging rhinoceros. Otherwise, she'd been for several days of rolling around on the floor in agony with a hot water bottle strapped to her stomach. With chattering teeth and her head feeling like pulsating cotton wool, she unlocked the door, pulled it open, then jumped back startled. Looking for all the world like a welcoming committee, Ned and Gabriel were waiting for her. We heard a noise and came to check on you, Gabriel said, making a show of looking anywhere but at the rumpled state of her déshabille. No need to ask how you're feeling. You look ready to drop. Back to bed with you. She wrapped her arms around her shivering body. Uh, actually, I need to go into Deaconsbridge. Yes, my dear, and I need to marry Lucretia Borgia. But before I send out the wedding invitations, you must go back to bed. No, really, you don't understand. I have to go shopping. But even as she was speaking, she was being taken by the arm and steered towards the bedroom. Too weak to disentangle herself from the firm hands that were guiding her, she was in bed before she knew it. Sitting next to her, his legs stretched out alongside hers, Ned said, Mummy, are you very sick? She forced her dry lips into a smile. Just a little, but I'll be fine, honestly. He dipped his head towards her shoulder so that she could put an arm around him. I told Mr Liberty about us having to water him to make him big and strong again and he said it was his turn to water you now. Right on cue, Gabriel passed her the mug of tea he had brought up. She took it gratefully, then remembered about her need to go shopping. She knew, though, that in her current state, driving would be a momental challenge, as well as putting others on the road at risk. Yet the thought of asking Gabriel to buy her such personal items seemed far more daunting. Down in the kitchen, while Ned organised the draughts board for another game, Gabriel cringed at what he had been asked to do. Though he had been married twice and raised a daughter, intimate womanly matters had been an accepted no-go area of secrecy and mystery. Nothing had ever been divulged to him and he had certainly never felt the urge to probe. Now, though, he was expected to walk bold as brass into the chemist in town and hunt through the shelves for... for... He ran his hand through his hair and shuddered. He couldn't bring himself to say the words, not even inside his head. Worse still, he had no idea what the wretched things looked like. And yet he had to do it. Miss Costello, Clara, who had shown him such kindness, was upstairs in bed relying on him. This was no time to be squeamish and embarrassed. He tried to remember the last time he'd been into the chemist. It was when he'd burned his arm and had needed antibiotics. He saw himself in the shop, waiting for the prescription to be made up. Closing his eyes, he tried to recall where everything was kept. 
Tissues, toilet rolls, shampoo, nappies, combs, brushes, makeup, camera films, plastic rain hoods, nail clippers, pumice stones, sponges, sponge bags, toothpaste, throat lozenges, vitamin tablets, witch hazel, laxatives. Oh, it was hopeless. He could practically do a roll call of everything in the damn shop and still not locate the crucial items Clara required. Hearing his name called, he opened his eyes and turned round. What's that you're saying, Ned? The telephone's ringing, Mr Liberty. Can't you hear it? He looked about him, confused. His brain was still in the chemist, searching the shelves for the elusive items. Oh, so it is. He crossed the kitchen, went out into the hall to where the phone was ringing. He picked up the receiver, glad of their diversion. Hello, Dad, it's me, Jonah. I'm just nipping to the supermarket and I wondered if you needed anything. I noticed you were getting low on cereal the last time I was there. Anything in particular you fancy? Thank God for Jonah, thought Gabriel five minutes later, when he explained that the Costellos were staying with him again and he had offloaded, after a few false starts, the task that had been trusted upon him. Chapter 45 Jonah was still smiling to himself as he worked his way methodically round the supermarket, which was busy with early evening shoppers. Weaving a path through the stop-start traffic of trolleys, he didn't know what amused him more. His father's excruciating embarrassment as he mumbled into the phone, trying to avoid the unmentionable T and ST words, or the fact that Miss Costello was back, albeit under the weather with flu and female malaise. Arriving at Mermaid House and parking alongside the Costello campervan, he thought of how only the other night he had wished for its owner to return to Deaconsbridge so that she could wave her magic wand over his father. Well, amazingly, the first part of that wish had come true. Now it was a matter of getting her back on her feet so that she could fulfil the rest. As to any pleasurable hopes he might have secretly harboured for himself, time would tell on that score. He opened the boot of his car and lifted out two carrier bags. One contained everyday bits and bobs for his father and the other everything necessary to get the patient on the road to recovery. His father met him at the door. He looked anxious. Did you get everything? Everything, Jonah reassured him and stepped into the kitchen. Hi, Ned. Nice to see you again. How are you doing? Hope you're not going to come down with the flu. You ought to be careful too, Dad. Ned got down from the chair by the arga where he had been reading the book and came over. Have you brought some medicine to make Mummy better? That's right, lots of medicine. We'll soon have her well enough to chase you round the garden. He passed one of the bags to Gabriel. Do you want to take it up? His father's face coloured. Uh, no, I was just about to start cooking some supper. You do it. OK, but why don't you hang fire on the cooking and let me do that for you? He realised when he was climbing the stairs that he hadn't asked his father which bedroom had been turned into a sick room, but the sound of coughing directed him towards Val's old room. He knocked on the partially open door. A croaky voice answered, It's okay, I'm as decent as I'll ever be. You can come in. Oh, it's you. You sound disappointed. She blew her nose. I haven't the strength to be disappointed. You can come closer if you want. I promise not to breathe over you. What have you got there? He handed her the plastic bag, hovered awkwardly at her side, then sat in the chair next to the bed. 
At once he felt history repeating itself. How many times had he sat here in this chair chatting to Val when she was ill? I was going shopping anyway and Dad enlisted my help. Despite her discomfort, she smiled knowingly. He could see now just how ill she was. Her complexion was flushed and beneath her eyes, puffy dark arcs bruised the skin. Her breathing was shallow and echoed with the trace of a wheeze that made him want to clear his throat. Your poor father, she said hoarsely. I've never seen anyone dissolve into such a heap of toe-curling embarrassment. Jonah smiled too. Not his scene, I'm afraid. Womanly matters were always taboo in this household. He would much rather you were suffering from something less indelicate, something, digif something dignified with backbone. Bubonic plague, for instance. Lowering his eyes to the plastic bag, he said, I've tried to cover every eventuality, but if I've forgotten something or got the wrong thing, just say and I'll make another trip. The supermarket stays open until eight o'clock. She rummaged through the bag. He could see the relief in her face. Good heavens, she said hoarsely. I'm looking at a small chemist's shop. You're a real lifesaver, Master Liberty. You've thought of everything. Super strength painkillers and a selection of feminine hygiene to suit every occasion. I can even go swimming now. She coughed, then reached for a tissue and blew her nose. That's if the mood takes me, of course. Mind if I make a timely exit? He rose quickly to his feet. Shall I bring up a drink so you can take the painkillers? Tea would be great, though don't make it as strong as your father does. With the amount I'm going through, I don't want to risk sprouting chest hairs. She was back in bed when he knocked on the door again. He noticed she'd brushed her hair and sprayed on something pleasant. She took the mug from him and said, Maybe this is the moment to say that you can call me Clara, seeing as we've been so intimately thrown together. I'll call you Clara if you stop calling me Master Liberty. Agreed. So, and given your stunted upbringing at the hands of a father like yours, where did you pick up such a wonderful understanding of female needs? How come you're not so bashful? No big deal. My last girlfriend suffered badly every month. She found yoga helped. Shall I pop out the pills for you? She nodded, then settled back into the pillows and sipped her tea. Suddenly, she looked doubly tired, as though just talking to him was taking it out of her. You're too much, Jonah, you really are, she sighed. Emily was a fool to let a saint in human form slip through her fingers. He put the tablets into her outstretched hand. How did you know her name was Emily? Her eyes wavered away from his, looked out of the window at the distant crest of Kinder Scout, bathed in the soft early evening sunshine. Your father must have told me, she said. How else would I have known? It seemed unlikely that his father would have discussed something as personal as his younger son's love life, but Jonah let it go. She started to cough again, her shoulders jerking violently. He took the mug from her and put it on the bedside table, next to the box of tissues. From the carrier bag that was now at the end of the bed, he pulled out a bottle of cough mixture. He read the instructions on the box. You're not pregnant or asthmatic, are you? Not asthmatic, and certainly not pregnant. Not unless this is a contagious bout of immaculate conception I'm suffering from. He unscrewed the metal top of the bottle, measured the specified dose into the plastic cup provided, and gave it to her. Every four hours, it says, he checked his watch, so the next dose will be at eleven. She gave him a limp salute. Yes, Doctor. I'm on cooking duty next. Any special requests? She shook her head weakly. No, I'm not hungry. Not even a boiled egg? Everyone likes a boiled egg when they're not well. 
Smiling, he added, perhaps I could rustle up a soldier or two. Sorry, but uniforms have never done it for me. He emptied some of the contents of the bag onto the dressing table behind him, lining up packets of lemsip, throat lozenges, vitamin supplements and the extra soft tissues. He caught her eye in the mirror as she watched what he was doing. Thinking that she had probably had enough of his company, he folded the bag and said, Well, I'll leave you to it then. Shout if you change your mind about something to eat and don't worry about Ned. Dad and I will take good care of him. He was across the room and standing by the door when she said, Thank you for the tea, Jonah, and... And? And for everything else. Give yourself a gold star and go straight to the top of the class. I guess it's the least I can do, given the amount you did here for Dad. A burst of coughing rattled her chest, and when she had recovered, she said in a voice laden with sleep, You need to talk to him, Jonah. There's something he wants to say to you, something he needs to say. Help him to seize the moment. He's not brave enough to do it on his own. Puzzled, Jonah went downstairs. He could hear the animated sound of his father's voice in the kitchen. He stood in the doorway, taking in the scene. By the arger, sitting on Gabriel's lap, Ned was enthralled with the story that was being read to him with relish and enthusiasm. How perfect they looked together. It seemed a shame to disturb them. The vote was carried by a unanimous show of hands that Jonah should cook cheese and ham omelettes and Ned's favourite vegetable, sweet corn. He was a happy and remarkably trusting little boy who appeared to take everything in his stride, a trait he had probably inherited from his mother, thought Jonah. Though moderately concerned that she should soon be well, he wasn't put out by her absence. It was only when he started to yawn and Gabriel announced that it was bedtime and that he ought not to share a bed with his mother that night that he became anxious. But where will I sleep? In Winnie, on my own? What if I have a bad dream? Jonah stepped in quickly. You could have my old room if you like. It's next door to your mother's. Let's go and have a look at it, shall we? It was a dreary sight in the dim light cast by the low watt bulb hanging from the ceiling rose. There were several boxes on the double bed, but when these had been removed and the bed made up with a clean sheet and Ned's own pillow and stripy blue and white duvet, he seemed happy enough with the arrangements, especially when he found a collection of Jonah's long-forgotten books in a chest at the foot of the bed. There were ancient Rupert Bear books that Val had given him at Christmas, as well as an old Blue Peter annual. Despite their age, they were in pristine condition, but Jonah had always been careful with his things. Will you check my teeth for me, Ned said to Jonah, when he had changed into his pyjamas and stood poised with his toothbrush in the bathroom, his chin level with the basin. Mummy always does that. I have to do them first, then she brushes them again to make sure I've done them properly. This duty carried out, Ned then asked if he could see if his mother was awake to give him a goodnight kiss. OK, but be sure to be very quiet just in case she's asleep. Jonah waited for him outside the door, not wanting to intrude. Seconds later, Ned reappeared, disappointed. She is asleep, but I climbed up onto the bed anyway and gave her a kiss. As he walked Ned to his bedroom, Jonah was surprised when the youngster slipped a small hand into his and said... Will you tell me a bedtime story, please? A made-up one. I like those. They're fun. A winning, toothy smile appeared on his face. He was hard to resist. So, after Ned had settled himself beneath the duvet, Jonah sat on the edge of the bed and started his tale. He soon realised that he was cheating and was giving Ned a jumbled-up version of the selfish giant. Deciding that there were too many deaths in it for a four-year-old, 
He improvised and gave the tale a different spin so that everyone lived happily ever after. His eyes glazed with sleep, Ned said. Why didn't the giant like the children who came to play in his garden? Because he thought they were noisy and might spoil his garden. But they didn't, did they? They made it nice for him. The flowers grew and the sun shone. And he was jolly lucky to realise that before it was too late, said a gruff voice at the door. Ned lifted his head from the pillow and Jonah turned round. How long had his father been standing there? He came into the room. Do I get a good night kiss from my favourite house guest then? Jonah patted Ned's shoulder affectionately. I'll leave you to it. Good night. Will you be here tomorrow? I'm at school during the day, but maybe I'll pop in and see you in the evening. Sleep well. While he waited for his father to join him in the kitchen, Jonah decided to take Clara at her word, help him to seize the moment. Well, perhaps that moment had come. But what if the consequences were as devastating as the last time he had tried to talk to his father? Driving home later that night, Jonah brought his car to a sudden stop. For a long moment he sat and stared at his hands as they gripped the steering wheel in front of him. Then, in a swift, decisive moment, he switched off the engine and got out of the car. Breathing hard, he went and leaned against the dry stone wall alongside which he had parked. He gazed across the darkened landscape, back towards Mermaid House. He saw that his hands were shaking. It was shock. What had just passed between him and his father had gone well beyond anything he had thought might come of a heart-to-heart chat. To hear his father asking him for his forgiveness had been unbearably painful. It had been the culmination of a lifetime of confused guilt and regret. A lifetime of wondering how things might have been for his father and for his brother and sister if he had never been born, if their mother had lived. Forgive me, Jonah, please. He had never thought to hear those words, never imagined such a moment when his father would lay a hand on his shoulder and say that he was sorry. Almost too choked to speak, he had mumbled something about it being okay, that there was nothing to forgive, that it was all in the past. It'll never be in the past, his father had said. Not until I know you forgive me. They were both standing in the library, symbolically beneath the portrait that Jonah had made countless wishes upon as a child. Make my father happy. Make him notice me. Make Casper and Damson like me. Casper had once caught him staring up at the painting and had taunted him cruelly. You killed her, you know that, don't you? If it hadn't been for you, she'd still be alive. Please, Jonah, his father had said. I know I've done everything wrong, but I want to change all that. It's not too late, is it? A shake of the head was as much as he could manage, and with an unsteady hand he had taken the glass of whisky his father had just poured for him. He downed it in one, willing its warmth to relax his throat so that he could speak. It worked. It's okay, Dad, really. I've never held anything against you. I knew it was all down to circumstances. It was then that his father had told him about going down into the copse with one of his shotguns, just as Jonah had feared he might. No, Jonah, he said, raising his hand to stop him from interrupting. And don't look at me like that. I don't deserve your sympathy. Not one ounce of it. I've been a damn silly fool. I can't promise to change overnight, but I want you to know that I do care about you. I care very much. Another drink. You look like you could do with it. I'd better not. I'm driving. Of course.
an awkward silence then followed, when neither of them spoke, not until Jonas said, It's getting late, I ought to go. They parted at the back door, not with a great show of newfound emotion, not with an uncharacteristic hearty embrace, but with a warm handshake, as though they were two people who had just met for the first time and had decided they quite liked each other. Turning from the dry stone wall, Jonah got back into his car and drove home. Chapter 46 That same night, in Cross Street, Archie was eating his supper in front of the television. The news was on, but he wasn't listening to it. He was too tired. It was as much as he could do to cut into the chicken and mushroom pie he'd picked up on the way home. It had been a long, long day, with a house clearance in Whaley Bridge that had taken more effort and time than he'd anticipated. Valuable hours had been wasted because the relatives of the deceased owner of the house couldn't decide who should have what. It should all have been settled before he and Samson had arrived, but it hadn't, and they were soon caught up in a classic family dispute, with the dead woman's daughters-in-law arguing over who had been promised a pretty little carriage clock from the front room. When things had got ugly, he and Samson had retreated to the kitchen to start on the cupboards, leaving the rapidly dividing family to resolve matters alone. It wasn't as though there was much worth fighting over. The house was small and the possessions meagre. Maybe that was the problem. The fewer the bones to pick over, the more frantic and bitter the feeding frenzy. Perhaps it was some folks' way of handling grief, letting off steam by bickering among themselves. It distracted them from what was really going on. But this lot had been mean and grasping. They hadn't been interested in sentimental keepsakes. They only wanted the stuff they thought had a bit of value. It had been left to him and Samson to clear out the rest, which the family plainly regarded as rubbish. Archie always felt he owed it to the person who had spent a lifetime gathering these mementos to do his best by them. It was the bedside tables that invariably got to him. It was in those little drawers that often the most personal and poignant objects had been kept and which gave the deepest insight into that person's habits and thoughts. Today's bedside table had revealed the usual old tubes of ointment, packets of indigestion tablets, buttons, rusting safety pins, bent hairpins, and a string of cheap gaudy beads. There was a tiny-faced watch that didn't work, a money off voucher for washing powder dated October 1988, a pair of tweezers, a throat lozenge that had oozed a sticky trail across an envelope of black-and-white holiday snaps, a crumbling bath cube that had lost its scent, and a small trinket box containing a collection of Christmas cracker jokes, unused party hats, two plastic whistles and a key ring. There was also a small Bible, its pages thickened with use. He'd got away from the house just in time to nip home, clean himself up, then drive to the hospital. He went every day hoping for some sign of improvement in his mother. He always came home disappointed. Her condition had remained the same since she'd been admitted. Unmoving, lost in a world where he couldn't reach her. He talked to her all the time, though, needing to believe that while she couldn't make any movement, not even a flicker of her eyelids, she could still hear him. He couldn't bear the thought that she might be lonely, that she might feel he had abandoned her. So he kept her abreast of everything that was going on around her. He told her about the attractive nurse who had just got engaged and was planning to marry on a faraway Caribbean island. And with his voice deliberately low, he gossiped about her fellow patients. 
the uppity woman opposite, who was always complaining about the food, the woman who was addicted to crossword puzzles, and the woman in the risque nightdress, whose husband was smuggling in a regular supply of illicit hooch for her. He didn't tell her about the woman in the nearest bed, who had died, and whose place had been taken by someone new. She had appeared on the ward yesterday, an elderly woman with badly fitting dentures who wouldn't stop interrupting Archie as he talked to Bessie. Maybe she was lonely and didn't have anyone to visit her, but she had tested his patience. What did you say your name was? she had asked him for the hundredth time. Archie, he replied for the hundredth time. I knew an Archie once. He was a terrible man. Kissed me outside the butchers for all the world to see. She laughed loudly, her loose teeth sliding around in her mouth. What did you say your name was? Archie. I knew an Archie once. He was a terrible man, he. Feeling trapped and hating himself for his rudeness, he had drawn the curtain around his mother's bed. Looking down at her still body, it was as if her features had been stolen from her face. All the warmth and light had gone from it. The true essence of Bessie Merriman was no longer there. He ached for her to open her eyes and say something. Anything would do. Archie, be eleven, fetch me a cup of tea, will you? Or, Archie, where am I? What am I doing here with all these poor old dears? Oh, to have one last conversation with her. To say all the things that needed saying. What he'd give to hear just one of her nonsensical words from her creative lexicon. Forking up the remains of his chicken and mushroom pie, he realised that he'd never hear another word from Bessie. That he was days away, maybe hours, from the end. When the telephone rang again, Casper could have knocked whoever it was to the ground. He was sick of the phone ringing constantly. Word had soon gone round that he was on his uppers and the vultures had gathered. Friends, they called themselves, well-wishing friends who were concerned about the rumours they had heard. To hell with that, they just wanted to gloat. He poured himself another glass of wine from the second bottle he'd opened that evening, staggered to his feet and grabbed the cordless phone. Whoever you are, why don't you take a one-way trip to hell? Mr Liberty? Sorry, did I make that too complicated for you to understand? Mr Liberty, this is Roland Hall. You might recall that we've spoken before. Too right, I remember. You're the patronising wimp who wouldn't let me speak to my sister. What do you want? Are you hoping I might be as stupid as Damson and want to join you? No, I'm calling to say that I think you should come and visit her. Though Casper was very drunk, enough of his brain was functioning for him to hear something in the man's voice to make the hairs on the back of his neck stand on end. Why? What's going on? And why isn't Damson saying this to me? A pause. Damson doesn't know I'm making this call. Is that how you operate then? Sneaking behind your punters' backs, tittle-tattling to friends and relatives? Mr Liberty, our alternative way of life here at Rosewood Manor may not... Look, buddy, I'm all out of rapture and patience, so cut the drivelling waffle about your Arcadian existence and get to the point. There was another pause. Your sister is ill, and I think you should come to see her. After drinking copious amounts of head-clearing espresso coffee, Casper lay in bed, cursing the day Damson had ever been introduced to Rosewood Manor Healing Centre. Oh, he knew what had happened up there, all right. They'd fed her some wishy-washy diet of ginseng and cabbage, made her ill and were now frightened at what they'd done to her. He punched his fist into the pillow, regretting the amount of wine he had drunk. If he hadn't knocked so much of it back, 
he would have been able to drive straight up there and fetch Damson home. As it was, he had to wait until he was free of the risk of getting done for drink driving. He already had six points on his licence, and on top of everything else, a year-long bang would be the final straw. As soon as it was light, Casper was ready for the journey north. He'd managed a couple of hours' sleep, and with yet another fix of strong black coffee inside him, he gripped the steering wheel with steely determination. He had it all worked out. He would arrive at Rosewood Manor, give that Roland Hall a piece of his mind, put Damson in the car and get the hell out of it. Then he would drive south, stopping somewhere for the night, Harrogate perhaps, somewhere half decent. He had enough cash on him to stump up for a twin-bedded room for him and Damson, but he would have to be careful. Credit cards were a no-go area now. He had a bit stashed away that not even his accountant knew about, but that was real rainy day stuff. And of course, there was always Damson. Once she knew of the bother he was in, she would tide him over until he got himself sorted and was on his feet again. Unless, of course, those manipulative brainwashing weirdos had bled her dry. This thought had him pressing down on the accelerator and flashing his lights at the car in front of him. He sped on towards Northumberland. Clara opened her eyes, wanting to believe that she would feel better today. But she wasn't. She was worse. Her skin was so flushed and sensitive it felt raw all over, as if someone had taken a cheese grater to her in the night. Her joints seemed to have tightened while she slept and ached horribly. Her throat was so sore she would have sworn on a stack of Bibles that she had gargled with broken glass. Her chest ached from prolonged bouts of coughing and her head throbbed. Added to this, her stomach was cramping painfully. She eased herself into a sitting position and reached for the box of tissues, then took a sip from the glass of water someone had thoughtfully left for her and forced down a couple of painkillers. From downstairs she could hear voices, one high, one low. She glanced at her watch on the bedside table and saw that it was half past nine. This was no good, she had to get herself moving. She had to get back into the land of the living. She pushed away the duvet and swung her legs out of bed, her mind set on having an invigorating shower. On the other hand, given that the plumbing at Mermaid House was not for the faint-hearted, a bath might be a better option. But when she reached the bathroom, it was as much as she could do to brush her teeth and use the loo. Then she shuffled back to bed and pulled the duvet over her. A knock at the door interrupted a coughing fit. Come in if you dare, she rasped. How's the patient? asked Gabriel. Are you feeling better, Mummy? The look of hope on their faces was enough to make her cry. Sorry, she said, but I think I'm worse. I'll send for Dr Singh, said Gabriel, so resolutely that she knew it would be useless to try to overrule him. It's about time Sunny Jim did something worthwhile round here. The doctor called later that afternoon, but it wasn't the much maligned Dr Singh. It was a locum, a diminutive young man with the beginnings of a moustache on his top lip and a pair of nervous blue eyes. He checked her over, diagnosed flu, wrote out a prescription and advised her to drink plenty of fluids. As if we hadn't thought of that, Gabriel growled when he'd shown the doctor out and Clara told him what he had said. Sorry to be such a nuisance, she said. Sorry, too, that I'm not making a speedy recovery. He sat on the end of the bed with Ned. Can't be helped. Just glad that you're here with me and not stuck on a campsite in the middle of nowhere. Do you feel like eating anything yet? All you've had since yesterday is a bowl of tomato soup. She shook her head, then wished she hadn't. 
She closed her eyes, waited for her brain to stop spinning inside her skull and at once felt herself drifting on a tide of sleep. In the distance, she heard Gabriel say, Make haste, young Ned. We need to get your mother's prescription made up before the shops close for the day. Rallying herself, she said, or thought she said, Make sure you strap yourself in, Ned. The room went quiet and sleep claimed her fully. She sank into a dream that held her in an endless loop of knocking nails into the hull of a boat to stop the sea flooding in. Again and again she frantically banged the hammer against the nails. Bang, bang, bang. Tap, tap, tap. She roused herself out of the dream, only to slip straight into another. She was dreaming of Jonah. He was dressed in a pair of jeans with a loose-fitting pale blue shirt. His sleeves were rolled up to the elbows and he was carrying a large vase of flowers. Put them in the cupboard with the rest, she told him, but don't try eating them, they'll make you shrink. He raised an eyebrow, tilted his head to one side and gazed at her quizzically. She giggled, thinking how gorgeously fresh-faced and kissable he looked. Well, Master Liberty, I'll wager you've broken a few hearts in your time, you being such a romantic cutie. That was the nice thing about dreams. You could think and say what you liked with delicious impunity. He came closer, still tilting his head, and still, it had to be said, looking adorable. A slow smile appeared on his face. You're not mixing your medication, are you? he asked. She grinned back at him, but then began to feel that something was wrong with the dream. It was too real, too three-dimensional. She focused on the vase of flowers and realised she could smell them, could even identify the particular scent of carnations. Was that possible? Did things really smell in dreams? She decided not, and raising herself into a sitting position, she dragged her sluggish brain into a more alert state and registered that he was assessing her a little too intently for her liking, as if trying to decide if she was a candidate for care in the community. Did I just say something silly? she asked. Very silly. But it's my fault. I shouldn't have disturbed you. She cringed. Sorry about that. I keep having these awful dreams that don't make any sense. I thought I was still dreaming when you came in. Ah, well, that would explain the romantic cutie bit, he said playfully. These are for you, by the way. Where would you like them? And no worries about me eating them. I'm not hungry. She groaned. Oh, go right ahead, why don't you? Make fun of a girl when she's too weak to defend herself. If you put them on the window ledge, the breeze will waft the scent in my direction. And before you think I've lost my manners completely, thank you, they're beautiful. She watched him put the vase on the ledge, noting that he did everything with carefully considered movements, just as he had yesterday when he had set out the items from the chemist on the dressing table. There was nothing slapdash about him. With his back to her, as he looked out of the window, she said, School finished for the day. He turned, the sunlight shining from behind him and making his hair glow with a coppery warmth. Yes, and for the next week, it's half term now. Goodness, you're always on holiday when we meet. Not quite. He came back towards the bed. Are you up for a chat? Sure. He settled in the chair next to her, stretched out his legs in front of him, and smoothed the wrinkles in his jeans with long straight fingers. Where are Dad and Ned? he asked. The last I heard they were going into Deaconsbridge to get my prescription made up. She checked her watch. That was more than two hours ago. You've seen a doctor? 
Yes, your father insisted on calling one out. A boy not much older than Ned diagnosed I had flu. He smiled. He's very fond of you, isn't he? Who, the pubescent doctor or my son? My father. This may surprise you, but I'm quite fond of the old devil myself. She coughed, then coughed again, and once she'd started she couldn't stop. She held a tissue to her mouth while her chest crackled and her ribs ached. And as she struggled to catch her breath, he stood up and rubbed her back. Within seconds, the sputtering convulsion passed and she flopped exhausted against the pillows. Sorry about that, she wheezed. Can I get you anything? A new body would be nice. I'm tired of this one. But I'll make do with some cough mixture and a cup of tea, if it's not too much trouble. Your wish is my command. You see to the cough mixture and I'll organise the tea. He soon returned with a tray on which he'd placed two mugs of tea, a segmented orange and a plate of chocolate biscuits. Vitamin C and something to give you energy. If the crumbs are too painful to swallow, you can make do with licking off the chocolate. He made himself comfortable in the chair again, and after he'd persuaded her to take a biscuit, he said, I thought you might like to know that I took your advice last night. She dunked the biscuit in her tea. I'm having trouble remembering my name. Never mind what I said last night. What did you do? I got Dad to talk to me. She looked at him blankly. Did I tell you to do that? Yes, you told me to seize the moment. She thought about this. There was a vaguely familiar ring to the words, but she couldn't be sure they'd been hers. I think I may have been delirious when I said that. Was it good advice? He nodded. Excellent advice. I have a lot to thank you for. It seemed an age since she and Ned had found Gabriel on his knees in the copse, and Clara wondered just how honest he had been with Jonah. He's had a lot to come to terms with recently, hasn't he? She said, prompting Jonah into expanding on what he had just said. He ran a hand through his thick, wavy hair, an elegant movement that momentarily caught and held her attention. That's putting it mildly. I just wish he could have opened up years ago. He raised his eyes to her. Dad told me about you finding him in the copse. For a long moment his words and what they implied hung between them. I feel I've let him down, he continued, that he reached such an awful point and... Don't, Jonah. There's been enough self-recrimination going on in this family already. You tried your best with someone who wasn't ready to be helped. Just be glad that the two of you are reconciled. And remember, it wasn't your fault that he kept his feelings under house arrest all that time. He smiled, that soft, hesitant smile of his, and passed her another biscuit. Yes, ma'am. She waved the plate away. Feeling tired again? Yes. Anything I can get you before you slip away on another of your hallucinogenic trips? She thought about this. Actually, yes, there is. I need some clean things to wear. Take Ned with you to the van when he gets back with your father and he'll show you where everything's kept. The keys are in my handbag. Is that all? Hmm, something to read would be good. Though not the copy of Wuthering Heights in the rack above the table. My brain will crash completely if I attempt that. Pick me something else. Something light and comforting. Something romantic? She closed her eyes. All her energy now spent. No, a nice gory murder would suit me better. So Jonah had been right to be worried about Gabriel. 
Thankfully, Clara and Ned arrive at just the right time and are able to take care of him. Gabriel and Clara have a long talk, exploring all the emotions Gabriel had been feeling that led him to that terrible place. After an exhausting day and a sleepless night, Clara wakes to the realisation she's got the flu. Casper has a call from Rosewood Manor to say he should go to his sister Damson right away. Life seems to be getting very complicated for everyone at the moment. Join us next time to find out how Clara, Ned and the Liberties get on. Thanks for listening.